0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal.
1: And I'm Tracy Allaway.
0: Tracy, so obviously um, markets continuing to have an extraordinary year, at least risk assets uh, for the most part, uh, stocks continue to power to new uh, all-time highs all around the world, optimism breaking out. But I'd say like the um, the nature of the stock market rally or the nature of the market rally in general is sort of taken on a a different complexion lately?
1: I think people have been nervous about valuations for some time and the idea that even though we've had the biggest pandemic in over 100 years, which has really eaten into economic activity, we still have stocks uh, at a record. People sort of naturally feel a little bit nervous about that. And then recently, we had the sell-off in U.S. treasuries as well, and a little bit of a pickup in inflation right. expectations, which might be the beginning of, um, well, some people are talking about it being the beginning of a, a, a bigger change for the market.
0: And this would be a good time, actually, to mention that we are recording this <laughs> on uh, Thursday, December 3rd, the 9 The usual
1: 2020 caveat
0: yeah, that the whole world may have changed by the time anyone uh, actually listens to this episode. But yeah, we have seen a little bit of an uptick in uh, treasury yields, uh, market-based measures of inflation, actually higher than they were uh, pre-crisis, but some measures um, back to levels not seen since 2019. And also, uh, if you look at some of the really hot stocks lately, it's some of the real, like, sort of back-to-normal, unsexy stuff out there. So it's like, Airlines and physical retail. I think like shares of Macy's were up like 75% in November. Uh, US Steel, uh, the steel company, absolute uh, wild chart if you take a look at that. So, it in the beginning of this uh, rally, and it, uh, you know, thinking back to the spring, it was very much like tech and the stay at home trade. We we're starting to see it broaden out. And so people like uh, buying energy, another area, oil doing very well. So, These areas that did not participate in the first part of the recovery, or for several months into this, uh, have been getting a lot of uh, excitement lately or enthusiasm.
1: Yeah, that's right. And of course, we have talk about you know another sort of great rotation coming up.
0: Yeah, right. And of course, every time we talk about these rotations, there's the question: is like, is this another head fake? Are we just? Is everyone just going to go back to buying Fang and Microsoft and uh, you know, of course, Treasuries in a couple weeks, or uh, is this something new? So. Lots to think about as we close out 2020 from a macro perspective, all kinds of different moving parts going into 2021.
1: Yeah. And I I think, you know, there's clearly a lot going on, but um, but 2021 is going to be an interesting year. Right. Like if you just look at the market. Currently at all-time highs, you have that broadening of the rally. The big question is whether or not it's going to keep going. And then you have all these idiosyncratic events like what happens with the vaccine. And of course, how do mm-hmm. central banks respond to that? If we get a vaccine and the economy yep. really starts to recover, then could you finally, finally get inflation, uh, which you know could unsettle the market in one way or another? So I, I think you're right. Like There are these turning points that you can sort of see on the horizon. But the big question is whether or not, um you know, we're just going to be talking about them or actually experiencing them, whether or not it's another head fake. Yes.
0: Yeah. No, I, yeah, it's going to be a really interesting year. Let's hopefully it's not as interesting as 2021. Right? <laughs> yeah. uh, but you know, for our sakes, from a stuff to talk about standpoint, we hope it's at least somewhat interesting anyway, macro. So yeah, to talk about the outlook, I thought we'd bring on, Two of the smartest uh, uh, people we know who uh, discuss macro from both a pure econ perspective and a markets perspective, uh, both have previously been on the show. I want to bring on um, Nafal Sanala. He's a macro strategist and portfolio manager at EIA All Weather Alpha Partners. And John Turek, he's the author of the uh, Cheap Convexity blog, which has been a must read all year uh, for people in the know on macro and market, sort of tying together both the uh, the price action and the bigger uh, economic themes of the year. So, uh, Nawful and John, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for coming back. Uh, so, I'll sort of start off broad, and uh, either one of you could pick up, but sort of like, what's the uh, number one thing on your mind right now in terms of this sort of... The big questions or the big the big things to get right when you're thinking about uh the outlook for markets in twenty twenty one
3: i think uh we would probably both agree that the dollars you know kind of at the 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 focal point of our analyses um you know we 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 are in in a, in a very new interesting regime with the Fed. and if the Fed is to follow through on this um you know new regime and, and framework then what that would suggest is that um You know, as we get positive outcomes in the macro economy, it should actually lead to uh, feedback loops uh, via a lower dollar, and so that's why uh, we've been, you know, here at EIA, we've been really focused on expressing a lot of our bullish uh, trades through short dollar expressions. Um, So I think I think getting the dollar right, getting the Fed right, and then figuring out um, the similarities and differences between what what is a, a vaccine type of inflation and what is a you know, typical stimulus type of reflation. And and John's written about all of these things um in, in a lot of detail and and had some great frameworks. So I'll, I'll let him jump in a little bit too.
2: Yeah, no, I think I think as has been the case, you know, in the last few weeks, I think the dollar will probably continue to be like the fulcrum instrument for kind of how the market digests and prices going forward, this recovery. Um I think what's kind of interesting is and as Naful is suggesting with the with the new Fed reaction function, is that the Fed has moved from like their primary um, objective of being able to cut off left tails, right, to suggest that, okay, something bad has happened. How do we respond either through, you know, financial markets or whatever? And now as there's a train in motion, the Fed's best move in terms of kind of accommodating this recovery will basically be pushing whatever the train is and giving it another nudge. So in the end of Q3, we thought this train was probably going to be fiscal. And in August, we were kind of pricing this more MMT type world. And then fiscal negotiations kind of fell apart. We had an election where we're likely going to have a divided government. So the market scope for fiscal kind of came down. And now, post the vaccine news, we kind of begin to entertain a market that is like goes from a fiscal led recovery to a private sector led recovery and um, and that may change the channel but it still gets the train in motion and now the fed can jump on and say okay like there was you know an awful pandemic last year and now we're in 2021 with a vaccine and that doesn't really change anything for policy and that's a really powerful i think um, macro tool for them to basically push push forward this recovery
1: uh, now for, you mentioned the idea of a weaker dollar and feedback loops. Could you maybe go into some some more detail about how exactly you see that working?
3: Yeah. So with respect to the dollar more structurally, you know, if if you if you think about the the regime from, say, the financial crisis until covid, um, you know, the dollar was like the only game in town in terms of collecting yield and and having uh, positive growth prospects in the major economies and the major accessible markets. Um, Covid's really changed that dynamic, as you know, the Feds uh, kind of caught down to like Europe and Japan interest rates wise, as well as has changed its reaction function to be far more dovish and far more um, accommodative to positive outcomes. At the same time, China has kind of taken the role of you know the the yield premium, uh, and and they've made some changes to their to their markets, um, you know since. Especially since 2015, when they when they had their FX policy shift, and you know the the Chinese government bond market has has really turned into this. Um, you know, I, I think the way John put it once is just you know it's like one big sucking sound of capital, just really big one way flows. And so what that what that kind of means to me is that um, you know there's a structural the structural headwinds to to the U.S. dollar, and those those um, will not only be reflecting. Positive outcomes and and reflationary outcomes, but will also likely be driving them um, in a feedback loop as well um, through a variety of channels, both uh, through you know what that means um, to to current accounts as well as you know just general credit creation.
0: I'm curious about this idea, and uh, John, you've talked about a lot, both of you, but um, the idea of there being a meaningful difference between a fiscal stimulus-led reflation and a vaccine. Led reflation, so it's funny because you know as you discuss, John, it's like going into uh, Q3, beginning of Q4. The thought was like, okay, maybe we're going to get a fiscal deal, or maybe Biden is going to win with it and get a Democratic Senate, and then they're going to pass a massive bill uh, next year. But then that didn't happen. We didn't get the unified government. There's no uh, fiscal deal as of yet. And yet, like a couple of days after the election, we got the really good news about, uh, from Pfizer about their vaccine. And suddenly people realized that a vaccine is likely coming and it's going to be effective. And the renormalization of economic activity might truly begin in earnest sometime in the beginning of 2021. So from a sort of market standpoint, what are the meaningful distinctions between that uh, recovery led by a vaccine and a return to normal versus a recovery led by a sort of CARES Act
2: 2.0, right? Uh, I think it's I think it's it's such a key point, honestly, and it has been a, a big theme for the last few weeks. And I think it works through two channels. I think one is is the fundamental economic channel, which is to say that a fiscal deal that has a very heavy composition towards transfer payments has a much more immediate nominal impact, right? Because it goes into people's pockets, people can spend, there's a consumption element and it's, it's much more nominal because it's not followed by, there's no new productivity, there's no new investment, et cetera. It's very consumption focused. And that kind of, that is, you know, trickles out through the trade deficit. It's a weaker dollar, but it's, you know, it's consumption led. So it has a much more nominal impact. The vaccine, on the other hand, is different in the sense that it's much more on, the corporate side in the sense that it gives businesses kind of more clarity in terms of capex inventory restocking more you know business related decisions and that has more of a real impact um, in terms of you know leading to potentially like higher levels of real growth um, in the coming year and I think basically what the market kind of did with this transition from a fiscal regime to a vaX regime, is it traded scope for certainty, right? The potential of like more of an MMT type fiscal approach was kind of like, oh, we could have like high levels of nominal GDP and that could be pretty cool. But what the vaccine regime brings is like, we kind of know what the world's going to look like end of Q2 on uh, next year. And that has a massive reduction in risk premium and the market can levitate off that.
3: And if I could add a little bit to that as well, you know, um, and, and, you know, you definitely have seen this, uh, what what John's mentioning, you've definitely seen it in the markets, uh, whether it's, you know, some of the beaten down cyclicals, um, whether it's, you know, the the, the trade sensitive uh, places like, you know, the Nikkei has been one of our our longs to, to play this vaccine trade. Um, and even, you know, these, these dislocations between gold prices and real yields, I think all three of those things reflect exactly what John's saying with respect to the reduction of risk premium. But in addition as well, I think one other distinction between the two types of, um, you know, two types of reflation are that um, the consumption basket mix should likely shift towards services as, um, you know, we get this normalization type of dynamic. And that should be really interesting to me because uh, for two reasons, one, one tailwind to the short dollar and, and, and long R type of dynamic has been so far has been how much um, you know the consumption basket mix has has flattered you know the, the goods exporters like China um, and and so it's it, you know the, we we may see some hiccups um, you know or, or some retracements or this or that uh, sometime you know early next year but especially if you know the trend able to persist and and you know ultimately get through those, you know, those types of transitions, that would really reinforce um, the case that this is a structural shift and has, you know, a lot of legs to go. And the second point uh, with respect to this, uh, you know, the consumption basket mix shift to services is is one thing I'm really interested on and in to see is um, if there's been, if, if COVID ends up being a permanent downward shock to uh, the labor intensity of services output, as in, you know, the services output and services demand rebounds but does the employment side of it um, under underperform the output side of it um, and and that would be that'd be really interesting you know the, the idea being you know what the WTO and, and the Chinese entrance of WTO what it was to goods and and the labor intensity of goods we could see a smaller version of that materialize in services um, I, I don't have a strong view yet. About this, I think it's really going to be just something to keep in the back of our minds and and see how it unfolds in real time. But if that were to materialize, that would um, just give that much more of a a tailwind for the Fed to remain accommodative because you know the the employment would not be the employment picture wouldn't be recovering um, you know necessarily as 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 swiftly as expected on the services side.
1: So just on that note, I mean, we are starting to see some commentators, including some former. All thoughts, guess, but you know, people like Tim Dewey at the uh, the University of Oregon talking about the potential to have a supercharged economy next year, where um, you know everything looks pretty good. You get a vaccination, people go back to spending, um, unemployment rebounds and isn't actually you know as bad as maybe the Fed was expecting, and perhaps it sparks a little bit of inflation that puts the Fed in an awkward position. Is that a, a risk that you see for next year? Or do you think the structural changes that you just described are going to be enough to uh, avoid that scenario?
3: Uh, I, yeah, me personally, I, I think the Fed will likely remain accommodative. What, what should be interesting is, you know, to the extent that we see these dynamics start to emerge in the conversations, it's, it's likely to be reflected in internal divisions uh, within the FOMC. And so, what I'll be really interested to see is how chair Powell kind of navigates those decisions, d- those divisions and, you know, kind of put on a bit of like, look at some of his statements, do more of a political lens along those lines. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that um, there's a, there's a pretty high chance that um, we have a very strong economy next year. Um, you know, some, some of these South forecasts may actually be, you know, a little bit lower than, you know, what I would expect. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll know more, Um, you know, later this month, but especially around the the March FOMC meeting. Um, But the signs so far suggest to me that, um, you know, this is a new regime shift and we're not really going to, they're not really going to get ahead of it. And and just to be clear, with respect to what I was mentioning uh, with with the labor intensity of output uh, of services, that would be more of a question about on the back end, like not necessarily in the next few months, um, but more so about, you know, What's the what's the long term run rate of you know employment growth in the services side, um, and what does that mean for you know Fed forecasts? You know, where where they're likely to have to mark up and down you know the, the longer term forecast? But I know this is another question that um, I'm sure John has some some great um, thoughts about too. So I'll, I'll let him um, jump in.
2: Yeah, no, I uh, I I think it's 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 really interesting in the sense that the recovery next year. Is going to look very different than ones of at least the most recent past in terms of output shocks, in the sense that balance sheets are in a much better position, as people like you know, Tim Dewey have said, that there's, you know, there's this element of excess savings. And that's kind of come from this combination of the CARES Act, kind of having this huge multiplier, but also having the, you know, with the virus having these constraints in terms of people's ability to spend it. Um, And I think the other thing is we actually went into the crisis um, with, you know, household balance sheets in relatively good shape. Um, So coming out of it, it's not that usually in a recession, you kind of have this lethargic hysteresis kind of as people have to repair balance sheets. And that's why it takes time for recoveries to get off the ground. Um, And I think that could be very different this time, given that it's just (laughs) we had a we had a recession where disposable income went up. So um, it could, you know, very much change the scope of the recovery. And as it relates to the Fed, I think, and I think um, this, is, this is something I'm, I'm fairly confident, I think, and people are underestimating is, I don't think the Fed reaction function or response so far is cyclical. I think it's structural. And what I mean by that is, I think the Fed is kind of is not saying like this was the right reaction to a COVID shock in the sense of their forward guidance, balance sheet policy, and their and, and, and et cetera. I think what they're saying is, is, like we got things wrong a few years ago, and that's not going to happen again. And the manifestation of that will be that, yes, things are going to be, quote unquote, back to normal in the middle of next year, but the Fed won't, because it's not a cyclical response, it's a structural response. So I, I think the Fed will be much more dovish than I think a lot of people think. The,
3: the recalibration of their approach, especially with respect to the Phillips curve, predates COVID, right? So it, 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 what, what John's saying makes a lot of sense to me and conversations with John have actually kind of influenced my view here. One last point I'd like to add there is, you know, I think that one of the biggest things that, um, you know, I had to adapt to in real time and, and kind of change my mind on is exactly that Tim Dewey hypothesis of excess savings and, you know, John and I have talked a little bit about you know what would be cool ways to maybe think about the distributional aspects of this, and, and if, if the data you know exists for that, and that could be a key question to really gauge how, how far it can take us through next year. But it, it is really interesting. You know, the the initial conditions really do matter in in terms of macroeconomic thinking, and the initial conditions, the balance sheet wise on the household side especially, don't really suggest that we have to have very elevated savings rates for a long time as as balance sheets have to have to get repaired and to the extent that um we would need elevated savings rates in response to the you know virus uncertainty it's kind of similar to what john was saying with respect to the risk premium compression on the back of the vaccine news you trade scope for certainty and that certainty ends up being a pretty big headwind to um you know how high uh personal savings rates you know end up being next year
0: So one of the questions that I think, Nolfo, I've asked you this before, but it's something I've been uh, curious about a lot. Like, all right, we talk about regime shift and the Fed's regime shift is fairly clear and you believe it. And they're going to be uh, much less aggressive, they claim, in um, hiking rates. They're not going to be trying to get ahead of inflation in the same way. And so that's uh, potentially quite uh, significant. Obviously, the post-COVID economy could look different than the pre-COVID economy in ways, and maybe we'll talk about that more. But what does that mean for then sort of like normalized markets? And obviously, right now, as we said in the intro, we're in this era or this, not an era, we're in this like moment where people are buying like Macy's and airlines and steel companies, companies that were not sexy at all pre-crisis. Um, suddenly getting some sort of back to normal uh, appeal. But in the, as we normalize and maybe in sort of like Q3 of next year, things start to look genuinely normal. Do, uh, do people just go back to buying Microsoft and Netflix and Tesla as their leaders? Or does something fundamentally change where like new winners can emerge on a more uh, sustainable basis?
3: That's a great question. Um, I wish I had a, a great answer to that. Um, you know, one one thing that should be interesting along these lines is um, the results of the of the Georgia elections. It'll likely give some signal with respect to what we can expect on the fiscal front um, un, until the next batch of midterms in twenty twenty two, and that should be kind of interesting to keep in the back back of our minds. But um, but yeah, you know, I, I think that. At, at some point next year i wouldn't be surprised if you know we kind of pivot back to you know people are long long the long end of the bond market and long you know nasdaq and and, and china tech um and and it's it's interesting actually seeing how We've already kind of, we, 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 despite the fact that we've had this huge cyclicals, um, rally, you know, the NASDAQ actually did kind of catch, catch up a little bit in, 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 in recent sessions. So I think there's still going to likely be a structural demand for that type of stuff. Um, and you know, I, I would say though, that like, I I'm, I'm actually more interested in like, in terms of normalization trades that have durability, I'm more interested in, um, Looking at things in the emerging markets and looking at stuff that's uh, sensitive to global trade growth like the Nike, um, as opposed to you know just buying you know u s energy stocks and and you know retail operators
2: i think i think I think hes I think he's hundred percent right and I think one maybe of the more interesting transitions to come in you know 2021, 2022 could be in terms of like these narratives of like a fiscal reflation to a vax reflation is that the vax reflation kind of morphs into this broadening of a risk premium compression. And I think like one of the, I think uh, a lot of the market action post the vaccine kind of felt like, like the market was exhaling a little bit, right? Like it had all this built up risk premiums and like all these cyclicals had no idea um, and you saw it like across asset classes in terms of like trade sensitive currencies, etc., EM bond markets, where there's just this very high level of risk premium. And I think this kind of really dated back dates back a while. And why I think this could be maybe a, a bigger theme is that it's it could be another one of these regime shifts because what we had in 2010 to 2020 was basically post uh, financial crisis. Was basically exogenous shock after exogenous shock, and we had we went from the euro crisis to China deval concerns to Brexit to trade war and finally the the mother of all shocks in terms of COVID. And unfortunately, he passed away this year. But Emmanuel Farhi at Harvard actually did a lot of work on kind of why the market priced so much risk premium when discount rates were so low, and I think it has something to do with this. And it led to things like. You know, we'd have like the you know Swissy uh, currency on a, on a effective exchange rate valuation metric be at like you know just going a straight line from 2010 to 2020 when things that were like cyclically driven, like the Swedish krona or the Aussie dollar, things like that, would kind of just be in a decline lower. And it was basically the market just saying, "I want safety at all costs, and I don't want I don't want anything to do with cyclical.s I don't need that. There's this embedded risk premium, and I think." It's right for it to be there. And I wonder if kind of the vaccine and the combination of all of these left tail measures we've taken with fiscal filling in for deflation, with the European, um, with the European deal and, um, and, and things like that, um, I wonder if the combination of, of left tail changes and this catalyst to reduce risk premium kind of, you know, can have a higher trajectory than people think.
3: You know, I, I'm I'm looking right now on on the Bloomberg terminal of the ME, MXEF, the, the Emerging Market uh, Index, and on a, on a long-term scale. And so interesting because, you know, we haven't gone anywhere since 2007. Um, you know, it's just been a bunch of zigs and zags along the way. So, you know, a lot of volatility along the way. But we're basically, you know, haven't made any upward progress. Um, I think this is before carry, uh, albeit. But um you know if, if if the framing that John and I are presenting, especially with respect to the dollar, if those end up being right, then I would't be surprised if um, you know some of these emerging markets are are really kind of coiled and 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 could could be a, a really interesting and more durable uh, trade and as we as we kind of hand off like like John said, from just a pure vaccine exhalation to a broader based you know reduction of risk premium i and i would i would expect you know the the emerging markets trade to probably have more durability along those lines than um just you know the the u s cyclicals and u s uh small value so this
1: was actually going to feed into my next question. But we started this whole conversation talking about how the dollar is going to be really important uh, to 2021. And the more you talk about uh, sort of your specific um, ideas, I, I, I can see why you're so focused on the dollar. So clearly, if you're long emerging markets, that matters quite a lot. Do you think, well, first of all, what would it take to get a higher dollar in this environment? And secondly, is the suggestion here that the Federal Reserve has sort of become comfortable with this idea that it's the world central bank and that it's actively looking at financial conditions and actively caring about uh, a stronger U.S. dollar and what it does to the rest of the world economy?
3: With respect to what it would take for a higher dollar, I mean, one one thing that would obviously do that is if the Fed ended up being less dovish or less you know authentic in its reaction function shift than, than we we might be thinking in this conversation. Um, and and more more tactically in terms of like shorter term trading, I think that like I mentioned earlier, you know the the combination of of um, the consumption basket mix shifting toward services at the same time as potential for you know maybe a little bit of uh, compression of the of the yield spread between US and China, um, that could that that could give some hiccups along the way. Um, although I think they would be uh, opportunities to add or enter into these types of trades. Um, and with respect to the Fed, um, I, I do think that, you know, they've become more comfortable with this this notion of being the World Central Bank. You know, Brainerd's been really influential along the, the lines of how, how the international conditions kind of, um, you know, are, are part of the analysis the FOMC has to make. But I think more generally, um, you know, and even before COVID, it was just this notion that uh, why were we hiking in the first place? Like, why were we short circuiting these recoveries when you know our Phillips curve kind of based models um, never really showed like um, and it never materialized. The inflation never came, and um, you know what what are, what are the cost benefit trade offs? Um, and I think they have come to the conclusion that it, it's time to let it rip. But again, you know, you know, I, I think John's a little bit more confident than I am about this, although. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if I kind of converged to his views. But, um, you know, the, the the question there, I think, is going to be about uh, how, how does Chair Powell navigate what are likely to be kind of emerging internal divisions, even if they're not super strong, um, you know, as as these, uh, you know, as members of the FOMC start thinking about uh, the back end of, of, of this um, recovery more so than just the here and now, um, that should probably become more more in play as a debate. And um, you know, it should it should be interesting to see how he navigates that. And I'll let I'll let John hop in about about both questions as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think on the on the Fed on the Fed part, I think it's I think the Fed really nailed uh, and there's a Brainard speech in July that kind of really crystallized this when she talked about kind of stabilization to accommodation. And um and I think that the Fed is is very now comfortable in the idea that a lot of their policy effects kind of happen in the second derivative and it's not like the traditional Michael Woodford oh we do QE real interest rates fall term premium compresses and aggregate demand goes bonkers it's not like that anymore it's how do we through financial markets through financial conditions kind of create these feedback loops that basically allows our policy posture to expand for us and it's actually much more durable because because their feedback loops, they play off each other, right? So the Fed can say that okay, things are going well. That changes nothing for us. That has an effect on the dollar, which has an effect on real yields, which has an effect on the dollar. So kind of setting these things in motion, um, I think will kind will add power to the Fed's very pro cyclical uh, uh, ability to ease. And in in terms of the dollar, in 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 the sense of what could possibly be potential positive. Uh, catalyst. I mean, I think number one is, I think, probably positioning um, as like we kind of get into January and it becomes a very consensus view. um there's always these q one shakeouts, uh, it seems, in terms of the popular trades. Um, but I think what may be actually kind of maybe able to offset that is that a lot of people, I think, want to play um, these trades in in a catch-up sense, right? So you see these things like, Oh, copper gold the ratio has gone vertical, and 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 Russell versus S and P, etc. And the ten-year bond yield has done pretty much. I mean, it's you know marginally higher, but it's not really done anything. And I think a lot of macro is still kind of looking at like, okay, how do I pay rates to play this catch-up, or how do I do? And I think that's really missing the point because the reason these things go vertical is because they keep looking over their, the Russell S&P ratio keeps looking over its shoulder at the bond market and seeing nothing. So that's what allows it to go nuts and same with a lot of the cyclical data. And so I think that a lot of these things, um, yes, there'll be probably hiccups in terms of, you know, in terms of the recovery, in terms of the vaccine rollout, et cetera. But in, in bigger picture terms, I think the, the trades that are working now are still the bigger trades going forward.
0: I want to actually like really have you spell out that last point because it sounds uh, pretty important as people look at the rebound in small caps, value, commodities, copper, which is a commodity. And they're like, all right, but when are yields going to catch up? But it's not like that. There's no inherent with this new Fed regime, there's no inherent reason for yields to catch up. And if anything, it's this ongoing compression of the long end of the curve that further accelerates the gap between the two just sort of explain that or if, if I'm or t- if I'm summarizing your view correctly and how much longer that that dynamic could potentially run
2: yeah I know I think you actually summed it up perfectly I think that it it can run further in the sense that there will be these times when people are like oh maybe we can like price in hikes in 2023 and you've seen this recently a little bit on the backs on the back of the the BAX reflation narrative where Within the bond market, if you look at like uh, a butterfly, you'll see that the belly is kind of cheapening at the same rate that the long end is. And that's kind of saying like, okay, like maybe there will be, you know, because usually when the belly leads, like the belly led the bond market uh, lower. So that's like five, sevens, tens. And when that happens, you kind of say like, okay, this could be a policy change is coming. But I think bigger picture is that all this stuff is kind of there. There used to be these cutoff mechanisms to these moves. Right as in cyclicals would get off the mat, the dollar would start going lower. And then we'd say, oh, this means in two years that the Fed can remove accommodation. And now we're saying that in two years, the Fed's accommodation level is gonna look eerily similar to what it is now. And I think that's a very powerful point going forward.
0: You know, before we uh, wrap up, Novel, I'd love to go back to your point about could the COVID-19 crisis Be to services productivity as China's entry into the WTO in 2000 was to uh, goods productivity and the sort of deflation or disinflation that we saw for the next couple of decades in goods. Walk through your thinking there. What do you see happening out in the real world, out in the economy that you think could cause this, where we return to services, uh, pre-crisis levels of services consumption, but not pre-crisis levels of services employment, and sort of... A, why do you think that's a possibility, and what do you see as some of the uh, knock-on effects of that?
3: Well, the you know, first of all, this is very speculative of a view. It's sure. something that I'm just kind of, you know, I just want to see how it materializes. It's more of a question than a view. But um, it, this this was a huge shock, and it was very, very concentrated to, in the services sector. And so there's there's always this kind of, you know, necessity is the mother of invention type of thing type of dynamic. So that, that's one thing I think that, you know, service-oriented services oriented businesses have been likely focused a lot on the technological side um, in, in terms of how they kind of restart um, their businesses. And, and secondly, you know, the COVID, the COVID shock kind of just digitized everything and um, pulled forward a lot of this kind of technological, um, you know, implementation of a lot of things. And so, you know, I wouldn't be su- I wouldn't be surprised if, if, if that's how it materialized. What it, what it would look like in terms of like on the ground, the real economy. It's a good question. I don't I don't know if I have a great answer, but in terms of knock on effects, what it would mean is that we would have another kind of wave of you know positive output shocks that the Fed doesn't necessarily need to short circuit because it's not seeing the same um, impulse on employment and inflation. And you know, that's likely you know, if that were to materialize that would likely be, you know, another inequality widening dynamic and you know, it it it, it would it would lead to kind of like a a Goldilocks type of environment for the markets. Um, so, you know, that's that's one thing I'm, I'm interested to see as we restart the services sectors, what are we seeing in terms of the, the output versus employment picture, especially like later in the year once we're kind of, because, in, 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 you know, I, 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 when, on the front end of, of reopening and, and re- re- normalization, you know, the it, it, we should see a very robust hiring response in response to, you know, uh, a rebound in demand. But um, I'm interested to see if if that kind of tapers off a little bit uh, relative to output. And if that does happen, then that probably has some implications for longer term bond yields until un- unless and until we do see some sort of uh, more structural um, fiscal policy shift, because, um, you know, I think that that's going to be necessary uh, to to offset some of these inequality widening forces and and that's that's kind of when you know you start looking at the 2022 midterms and, and, and stuff like that to an extent the georgia elections too but even with the georgia elections you know even if both seats go uh democrat it's 50 50 with a vice president harris uh tiebreaker the folks with the most leverage in that environment would be the centrist democrats um you know the, you would need joe banshan on board for a lot of a lot of stuff um it's very different than you know if you have like 53, 54 seats, um, in the Senate and, you know, the, the progressives would have a lot more leverage. So that, that's kind of, um, a messy way of of me trying to lay out how I'm thinking about this.
1: So I'm thinking back to the beginning of this year, 2020. And when I think about all the crazy things that happened, I mean, just, just in January, we had the, the beginning of the COVID outbreak in earnest in Wuhan. Uh, we had, um, you know, the US and and Iran getting pretty close to an all out war. Um, lots of things happening. I mean, Kobe Bryant dying in a helicopter crash, like uh, that was a big deal as well. I mean, I'm thinking about how to phrase this question. But like, what what is your tail risk that you're watching out for in um, in 2021? But not the obvious ones, like we don't get a vaccine that works. What's your sort of out there? What's your left field tail risk for 2021?
2: Yeah, the, the 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 unknown unknown. Um, <laughs> I think that I'll, I'll 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 I won't I won't try and, and predict that, but I'll go with. I think that it will be very interesting in a policy sense, not only like kind of gauging new reaction functions in fiscal and central banks around the world, but kind of gauging um, when when will when will the rate of change matter in terms of policy easing, right? And it's like, will the end of 2021 be kind of these rolling cliffs of either central bank accommodation ending and fiscal accommodation ending? Because we like to forget that even though that, you know, the US has had a messy kind of fiscal picture, even though the CARES Act was obviously such a success, the rest of the world is actually kind of doing it a lot more effectively. I mean, Europe has its issues with disbursements of the you know, this the supranational project, but Germany and France both acted when mitigation measures went back into effect. Canada is, you know, promising more fiscal next year. Australia, New Zealand, the same. Even Korea, surplus Korea has an expansionary budget for next year. Japan's on their third or fourth supplementary budget. So a lot of these, you know, f- these changes in what was previously pretty dogmatic behavior from a lot of fiscal actors has happened. And the question is, I guess, Kind of looking at it for more of a a tail risk scenario is what if a lot of this goes off kind of go- cliffs off at the same time and then the market kind of becomes uncomfortable with this fiscal transition you know into the private sector because for the last ten years the private sector hasn't exactly achieved escape velocity on its own or it doesn't have a good track record of it so I think in terms of risks, I guess that would be my uh my twenty twenty one risk
3: I think that makes a lot of sense too you know um as John's mentioned um, a lot about how there's kind of a pro cyclicality element and dynamic with respect to this Fed regime. So if we do see some rolling cliffs in terms of change of change of, of policy accommodation at the same time as kind of the, the big normalization boost kind of starts to taper off, um, that that could be kind of a nasty cocktail, especially because, you know, and this is a question I'm really I'm really interested to see in the back half of next year. You know what is what is the run rate that we kind of converge back to? Like you know, has nothing really changed in the underlying picture? You know, once we're past you know the COVID shock and then the re, the, re, the normalization shock, uh, uh, upward shock, uh, you know, are we in the same kind of nominal growth environment as before? Um, because if so, you know, tapering off to that to that kind of run rate. At the same time as, as um, you know, if, if 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 we do see some sort of cliffs on the policy front, it'll be pro go on the way down as well. The same way it's been really effective on the way up. And I guess the other other thing I would mention would be, you know, just the typical classic macro punter geopolitics, right? Anything can happen with respect <laughs> uh, to geopolitics. I, I, I think it'll be interesting to see the approach that President-elect Biden takes with respect to China. I, I, I understand the, you know, there, it's, it's it's nice to have. A lot of the uncertainty removed, but um, you know, as I as I mentioned a couple of times on on uh, Bloomberg with, with you, Joe, during the trade war, I I I always kind of looked at it as it was a lot more bark, bark than bite, um, and ultimately, you know, the trade deal, quote unquote, was um, you know, it, it didn't really change anything structurally, and and actually, it cemented financial entanglements between um, the U- the U.S. and China. President elect Biden's approach may kind of depart from that. And so we could see some geopolitical hiccups along the way, especially because China's becoming a little bit more aggressive with respect to um, what it considers its clients. I'm sure that, you know, we're going to see alliance building um, start to emerge um, or or alliance rebuilding start to emerge. But, um, you know, the the transition has the potential to be a little bit messy. And in fact, I think that, you know, the personnel decisions that the transition team is making is interesting because... The Undersecretary uh, of the uh, for for the U.S. Treasury, w- one of them, um, he actually was the the lead negotiator for TPP. I think it, it signals that uh, President-elect Biden wants to take a relatively active stance with respect to China. So you know that's always that's always kind of in the cards, and it's probably a little bit less top of mind than it was under the Trump administration. So that could be something that catches us by surprise.
0: Well, uh, John and uh, Novel, so great to talk to both of you. Real treat. Tons to think about into 2021. Maybe we'll do like a mid-year update, like next June or July <laughs> and sort of uh, take stock of how things are going. I think that'd be good.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah cool. absolutely.
0: All right. Well, looking forward to it. And I appreciate both of you and all the uh, work you've done this year and helping us understand this. Um, thanks for coming on Lot. Thank you. Yeah,
2: thank you.
3: Look forward to next time. Take care, guys.
0: That was great. I really think uh, just in terms of understanding this year, I mean, throughout following both of them on Twitter, following their writings, et cetera, I don't think there's any two people that I think have had a clearer sense of the moving parts of the macro picture than those two. So it's great to talk to them about what they see happening next year.
1: Yeah, it was a really nice framing of the uh, the big macro, macro trends for twenty twenty one. I gotta say, you mentioned this idea of uh, coming back and doing a mid year update. I really hope, I really hope that January twenty twenty one is relatively boring and that it's not a repeat of what happened in January twenty twenty and that we don't have to have them come back on in February or something because the world is falling oh, yeah. apart. I really hope that's the case. I know. Um,
0: but it's like I want it to be, like I said, we said at the beginning, a little <laughs> less interesting. But, you know, not. Bo- I don't want a boring year, but a little more boring.
1: Well, I think even if even if we get a vaccine and even if we get a global economic recovery, which might normally be considered uh, boring for financial journalists. I, I think it's still going to end up being an interesting year, as John and, and Nauf were saying, because of the policy implications and and this this handoff or the interaction between fiscal inflation and and vaccine inflation. Like even if yeah. everything goes as they were describing, there's still a big question mark over how the Fed reacts to that combination.
0: You know, the uh, the point that John made and and both of them about the pro cyclicality, uh, the feedback loops of the current Fed posture, I just think, like, cannot be sort of understated. This idea that like, okay, the Fed has let's say the Fed holds rates at zero. And so, um, you know, earlier in the year, we had unemployment at uh, over 10 percent. So zero rates, unemployment over 10 percent you know, we have this accommodative level. If the Fed is still holding rates at zero with no intention of hiking anytime soon when the unemployment rate is below 7%, then that is implicitly more accommodative because the level of the economy has improved, but we haven't got any corresponding uh, tightening. So implicitly, we've been having this ongoing easing ever since the economy started rebounding in late March and early April. And I think that help really helps explain some in the extremity of these moves, that it's like if you're sort of easing further implicitly as the economy recovers, we you know, you can see how, you know, there's the feedback loop that's sort of like, a, I think I remember someone put it as like rocket fuel for the market.
1: Yeah, I think Knopf actually said that. Um, no, that's exactly right. It's it, And I, I think they mentioned that Brainerd's speech about going from stabilization to accommodation. Like there's a, a policy shift that is taking place. Um and so when you when you look at it through that framework, then U.S. stocks at an all time record, like it, it doesn't seem as divorced from economic reality as uh, as it would be. otherwise.
0: I do think like the like the big question mark, however, is still like in the post-crisis landscape, whenever we could declare we're post-crisis, which is probably at some point when. Uh, everyone, A lot of people have had the vaccine and it's just not a big issue anymore and everything's totally reopened. Do we just go back to the pre-crisis environment of people buying 10-year bonds and Microsoft and calling it a day? Or is there a new leadership? And like, I'm kind of skeptical that anything meaningfully macro changes. And I'm thinking back to like our conversation with Paul McCulley. It's like, in theory, we want to see some new like fiscal led permanent change to how we do macro management And that could produce a shift. But in fact, like we can't even like get a minor extension to the CARES Act. And if you look at Biden's uh, nominees, you know, like a lot of them are sort of like progressive uh, new thinkers, but also a lot of like, you know, pretty (laughs) mainstream conventional ideas, which means like it's still really hard to see, like where the big long term macro shift comes from, from sort of. Yeah. And then would we how do you get a big market shift without a big macro policy shift? Hard to see much changing.
1: Yeah, I I think that's fair. I that's fair. I mean, people are so focused on how to get from the current situation, from right now to this sort of end point um, in twenty twenty one when things go back to normal that I I think a lot of people like we're so focused on the journey that we're not necessarily considering the destination of what that end point actually looks like and. Uh, I I think you have a strong argument that maybe it just looks like, you know, what the er earlier years actually look like.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, going to be uh, an interesting year and uh, plenty to talk about and we'll have them back uh, either way. And that's that. Should we we leave it there? Not too interesting, hopefully, as you mentioned.
1: All right. uh, Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
0: And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guests on Twitter, Nawful Sonala. He's locked, but maybe he'll let you follow him. Uh, at Nawful Sanala. Follow our other guest, John Turek. He's at JTurek18. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcast. Thanks for listening.